Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the next episode of my Safe Bet Show. It is my privilege and pleasure to welcome a good friend of mine and at the same time the CEO and founder of Kindbridge, Mr. Daniel Amfleet, to this episode of the show. Welcome, Dan. Hi, Martin. Thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it. Our pleasure. I hope it's okay to call you Dan. Yes, of course. Unless you insist on Daniel, which no. I'm be happy to go with. That's okay. My mother calls me Daniel. Everyone else is Dan. So I'll stick to that. I will not <laughs> try to pretend that I happen to be your mother. I'm sure that she would be rather offended. Let me digress and delve into it. You have very kindly sent me your resume or CV, if you will, and that does show that you're a true master, not only a Jack, but a true master of all trades, or at least very many trades, because you did political science and sociology at Missouri State University, then switched to engineering and business at George Mason, and finally entrepreneurial studies at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So perhaps would you mind kicking it off by telling me how these subjects all sit together? Yeah, not a problem at all. I'd say studies have always been a pretty important part of my career. I've always managed to land in roles that require me to stretch myself and learn new methods and models to accomplish goals. So I imagine I'm probably going to continue going to school on and off throughout the, the rest of my journey here. Um, basically, as I really started my journey in, in like my undergrad, um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't have a clue uh, where I wanted to go or any of that. So I, I started just kind of selecting majors and taking classes. And um, I finally fell into sociology, which really piqued my interest because it was teaching me a lot about human behavior, different cultures. Um, and when I really started to grasp the concept that different cultures have different social constructs and that different demographics under the same social constructs experience the world differently, I knew I was hooked. And really, uh, political science came in a little bit later when, um, when it sort of dawned on me that in order to have an impact, I needed to understand how uh, legislation worked and how governing populations worked. Um, once I got out of school, I started working and I did a variety of things, including working in a in a startup and then uh, shortly thereafter moving into a management consulting career. And when I got into management consulting, it was really obvious to me that I was going to need a little bit more of a skill set around business acumen and understanding different sort of uh, approaches to engineering. And so that's when my employer actually sent me back to school to, to study up on those things so that I could have more informed conversations and understand a bit more about what we were doing. And that was um, a real blessing in a lot of ways because it really opened my eyes to how to make things work inside of business and how to start constructing inside of business for success. Um, and then several years later, I really kind of felt the entrepreneur trying to get out of me. So I went back again and started learning how to really break out and start to construct businesses on my own 
and uh, found ventures that had a societal impact. So I guess you can actually just call it a progression and understanding more than anything. Uh, one thing led to the other, which led to the other, which led to the other, which has sort of led me to where I am today. And very entrepreneurial you've been, and we will come on to that. But perhaps if I may for a second stick to your studies, having studied for perhaps way too long myself, albeit always the same subject, the tedious subject of law, law, law. From the sound of it, you never thought that enough was enough. So what kind of studies do you have in pipeline, in the pipeline at the at the moment? Is there a plan or you will just yeah, go I with think, the flow? I think a lot of it I think a lot of it moving forward is gonna be much more focused around population health and administrative services inside of the health system, um, really to just get a, a next level understanding of what's going on in those systems um, from a care delivery model and how to how to manage large populations um, successfully. So I think ultimately my next round of education is is likely to be uh, dedicated to healthcare and healthcare outcomes. And we shall, of course, wish you the best of luck with all the future studies. And I suppose at the same time, this is a great segue into talking about your work career. Indeed, very colorful and extremely impressive. Amongst others, you've been in the oil and gas industry. Parallel to that, in healthcare and public health, you've traveled the world by own admission. You've lived in a number of countries. So... What did you, when you were doing all these things at the same time, what was the particular focus at the time and what kind of skills did you manage to get under your belt as a result? Oil and gas was really my first full circle experience of working in industry from end to end and back again multiple times. Um, that was really an education in value chain, right? Understanding every facet of effectively how oil is discovered, how it gets extracted out of the ground, how it's processed, how it moves, um, how it gets fed into the pipeline, and ultimately how it gets into your car when you put your, uh, when you stop and stop to fill up. Um, it really was an ama amazing experience. And with them, you know, with oil and gas, I got to work with uh, four of the major oil and gas companies around the planet. Um, and that was in Malaysia and in the Philippines and in Australia and in the U.S. So learnings from that particular industry is that everything is really, really well connected. And the, in, like, the economy is so tethered to oil in so many ways and it produces so many products and there's so much that goes into it that it's the, the size and scale of the operation and the amount of individuals that it employs is incredible. Um, operational efficiency was really the big ticket item that I'd work on with those particular industry, with those particular companies that fit underneath that industry. Um, and management leadership, really decision-making process, um, what to look for when you're looking to diversify your portfolio, different strategies uh, around different particular products that you want to take into the market. Um, 
so that was that was pretty much oil and gas. Healthcare healthcare was humbling. I was doing oil and gas and healthcare sort of. I was changing on and off. So I do an oil and gas project, then a healthcare project, then an oil and gas project, then a healthcare project, then an oil and gas project, and so it went for about ten years, right? Um, but healthcare was completely different. Healthcare was really humbling. Uh, I really didn't know what I was getting myself into with healthcare. My introduction into that industry was really an exercise in humility. I learned to be humble really, really quickly. Healthcare is a completely different kind of animal. My experience here in the beginning taught me that even though the person that is caring for you has an MD or a DO behind their name, or they're a nurse with 15 years experience or an administrator who's been working in the system literally their whole life, they're not superhuman, they don't know everything, and they can't save everyone, but they try. Medicine is an inexact science with a lot of trial and error, as we've all sort of witnessed on a global stage over the course of the last, team, the last 18 months with COVID. And I learned here that focusing on fixing the person you're caring for completely is more important than anything else to the folks that work in healthcare, as it should be. But they can't get everything right all the time. So I also learned here that there are people that are literally thinking about the health and well-being of the community members, which they serve every single day. It's their job to keep you informed and aware out in the community so that we as people do a better job of maintaining ourselves and prevent unnecessary damage to ourselves so that our hospitals and clinics aren't having to spend all of their time and energy piecing us back together and can focus on advancing preventative medicine. That interested me a lot. And I'd say my biggest takeaway from my consulting career is that every industry has a different function, but their business practices are founded on some very similar principles. And those principles include efficiency and effectiveness pretty much at all levels. Truly humbling <clears throat> indeed. And if we could please continue running with the public health theme amongst others. There's a long list, as we've just discussed. You've uh, worked with public health systems in the Buckeye State of Ohio, and also the Golden State of California, two amongst many U.S. states that are in the throes of regulating gambling. So if we could talk gambling, because ultimately this is the safe bet show, we could talk gambling for a little while. From your perspective as a true public health expert, what are the key public health principles that do need to permeate the gambling regulations? Um, I think architecture around how care can be accessed and delivered is important to consider when you're bringing these types of products into markets, into communities um, that aren't particularly familiar with them. Um, I think that there's, there's a big trend in the United States that is a really unfortunate trend that also needs to be addressed. And that's really the fact that since the 90s, the U.S. has seen a 33% increase in deaths by suicide. Across the globe, we've seen a 38% decrease over the same period. In America, we get a lot right. Our strokes are trending down, cardiac arrests are trending down, AIDS and childhood leukemia all trending down in a big way, but suicide is going the other way and it has been for a long time. And also acknowledging that approximately 50% of the population is struggling with a mental illness and a very small percentage of them are getting help, I think is a big milestone to success as we roll across the country 
and bring gambling into the legal market. Just helping to understand how big of a bullhorn that casino has and how much call to action they can do to help individuals that are struggling out there is, I think, a big piece of the puzzle, right? So one is use your bullhorn wisely. Promoting mental health management isn't just the, isn't just the right thing to do. It's the responsible thing to do. Two, recognizing that gamblers that are struggling have an abnormally high suicide completion rate. That's something that I think we need to all address and move forward on and, and collectively construct creative ideas on how to combat that. And I think that there's a lot that industry and the regulators can do to build the necessary support structures in each respective state to help combat the problem. And it's not just limited to cool off periods or self-exclusion programs, education and prevention are key, but also access to services that help people understand an unhealthy relationship with gambling, how to regulate their emotional state and how to achieve healthy balances across their lifestyle are key too. When it comes to gambling treatment across the globe, really we do a great job with prevention materials. And in some parts of the world, we do a good job with treatment facilities but the majority of those are harmed by an the majority of those that are harmed by an unhealthy relationship with gambling sort of live in the middle and they need a lot of help and i think lastly mental health is in general only now starting to present itself in a way where people are actually less worried about stigma than ever before it's still a big issue but less so right now due to the amount that we're hearing about it through the Olympics with all of these athletes starting to talk about it, um, which means that there's a big opportunity to do more work with these populations than previously, which also means there's more opportunity to get smarter about how we approach care for them. Understanding what a quality outcome looks like for someone recovering from a gambling addiction is key and casino regulators and legislators can help there too. It's no mystery why opioid addiction gets a billion and a half a, a year for treatment. It's because we have records a mile long of what that person's experience was and we're logging outcome data. With gambling, we're not really doing that yet and we need to be. Is that helpful? I believe it absolutely is. I was going to say, I would say amen to that. And there's definitely a lot of work to be done and find a way of linking indeed not only the by now i would suggest standard responsible gambling concerns with the industry but even more importantly the wider mental health issues and to your example i suppose it also goes without saying that the example of the likes of simon biles who was supposed to win five gold medals at the olympics and did find the courage, plucked up the courage to pull out, despite all that pressure should serve as an inspiration to us all. And there are indeed lessons to be learned that can be applied to our industry. If I may, before we move on to discussing your two latest entrepreneurial ventures, namely Gamban, and then of course the latest one, Kindbridge, you happen to be, I believe that we need to take a geographical leap because you happen to be an American in Southampton. You live there these days, you know, from uh, a Londoner's perspective, to the extent I can call myself a Londoner, perhaps a fake Londoner, that's, that's down south. So what is it like for an American to live on British soil? Is it as jazzy as an American in Paris 
or in your daily life do you come across any particular hilarious challenges that you need to negotiate yeah well i think yeah i've been here now for so long it, it's it's now sort of just become a standard way of life but there, i mean there's plenty of things that i draw against from experiences from living in australia for example or for living in the united states and then sort of just compare attitudes and behaviors over here all the time and uh, you know the the most tricky thing in the uk from my perspective still you know i've been here now uh since 2014 so um, at the turn of the year, it'll be a, it'll be eight years for me having lived here. Um, and still to this day, I cannot find a good deli, right? Like you're in New York, you pop in, you get a nice roast beef sandwich and you can take a pound of meat home with you with some great cheeses and a bottle of wine and walk out the door and you're happy. And down here in Southampton, they just don't exist. So I think that's one thing that is, uh, I continue to just, it's just one of those things that just kind of bothers me. Um, another thing that really sort of drives me crazy, and I think that this just comes from the American perspective, um, is, have you ever been in an American grocery store? I know you've been to America a ton, but I have no idea if you've ever uh -huh. actually... Yeah, right, okay. Right. Uh -huh. um, yeah, like That's if, associated with challenges of its own. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like the amount of variety that we're exposed to back home in America, I mean, there's like 45 different types of Cheerios, right? And I've got small kids, so Cheerios are a big thing, right? Um, but you go down, you go down the the cereal aisle here, you get one type of Cheerios, you know, like you got 85 different types of Oreos back home, but you've got one type of Oreos here. Um, and then when it comes to yogurt, right? Like I happen to particularly like the Fahey yogurt and they have one flavor of the Fahey yogurt. And most of the time it's not even available and they always claim supply chain problems. Um, so yeah, I think the, some of those things are the, the quirks that are just, um, they've taken some time to get used to. Um, the driving is also a bit uh, different here, but I think it's mainly just down to the fact that the roads are so small and everything is so old. Um, they don't do a whole lot of road expansion down here, uh, which basically means me and my SUV barely fit in the lane, uh, which can be problematic from time to time. But I, you know, in general, I find I, I really actually quite like uh, the lifestyle. I really like having access to the NHS, which is a massive game changer um, compared to back home where um, I was just speaking with a, an elderly couple who were paying upwards of $6,000 a month for medical insurance, which is absolutely insane. Uh, I mean, first of all, they're above 65 and they're still basically getting rinsed for their medical insurance, which is crazy. Um, whereas over here, you know, it comes out of the paycheck in terms of it's just basically taxed and the at time of consumption, when you actually need to use it, you don't pay anything out of pocket you know, ever, which is really hard for 
Americans to wrap their head around at first because the system is so different over there when it comes to healthcare. It's a fee-for-service model over there, um, where effectively, you know, you're buying healthcare and then you're using a copay and you're you're using a deductible, um, and there's money exchanged pretty much with every transaction. Whereas over here, that doesn't exist. Um, so I'd say those are some of the interesting things that that I've noticed, and then I think the the most obvious one is that you know the sun really only comes out about. Uh, four months out of the year down here. Um, you pretty much live under cloud cover and you've got to learn how to deal with that. Um, and you know, it is what it is. There's still, there's tons of beautiful spots around the country. The history is absolutely amazing. Um, you know, historically where I come from, I think the oldest street in the town that I, uh, grew up in dates back to about 1890, uh, which is pretty old in the States. Um, however, down the street from me, where I live now, I have St. Michael's Church, which survived the, the bombings during World War II over here. And it happens to have been constructed literally like 1,007 years ago. Um, so the history is, is very rich, which is very different compared to, to the short history of the United States. And it's, it's very nice getting sort of equipped um, and a better understanding of uh, the history of the world through the British lens. So um, that's pretty much my experience. I mean, you've how long have you been here and what's your experience been? Well, I've been here for over 12 years, I suppose, coming from the other direction. Uh, Europe has not been such a cultural shock, but still it has been. Suppose I take it then that there's no cutsies in Southampton and sadly only one variety of biscuits on the other hand. Looking at the bright side, this country happens to have had produced the likes of Richard the Lionheart, Shakespeare and of course the NHS. No matter how dense culinary and history preferences, no matter how interesting they are, let me bring it back so that we're not going off tangent and ask you about Gamban first, because having moved to Southampton, in your own words, you bumped into a small tech firm in the local area called Gamban. So could you tell me what Gamban was all about and what it is about these days? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that was a great, yeah. So that, that, that was really my introduction into casino and sports book, um, which was a really, really wild beginning. And I, I won't, I won't deter too much from, from what you asked, but it's fun to tell, right? So my wife was pregnant at the time. Um, <clears throat> things were getting interesting with the pregnancy and it was, it was really obvious that I needed to be closer to home. And I happened to be going up and down every week from Southampton to Aberdeen for four days a week, um, working in the North Sea, uh, working with a, a massive oil conglomerate. Um, and in the local area, my wife had started up a coffee shop. And so every time I'd come home, I'd basically go spend time in the coffee shop with her. And through the coffee shop, I actually ended up meeting Jack, who is the founder of Gamban. And Jack would come in on the weekends and we would chat and he would fill me in on what was going on with Gamban and it all sounded really interesting. And it sounded like they were starting to get some really good traction. And this was like 2017. So 
and that's it's been going for quite a while now and as as most folks in at least in the UK and Europe are aware it's pretty much a a staple product for individuals in the UK that um, need access to some help to to stop gambling um, at the time it was the, it, there was a product it was an idea there was a vision um, and I really just sort of helped put some framework around that and and get the operation up and running um, and the sales arm of it up and running and trying to really help with the product market fit for it. Um, and it was a great experience. I mean, those guys, they knew a lot more than I did about what was going on in casino. Um, There's a lot of lived experience going on around the room, which is always really helpful and insightful when you're building a product out. Um, and they wanted to get aggressive and, you know, like the objective with that was to build the best gambling blocking software on the market. And it was a success. They successfully built that. And um, now it is, it is sort of permanently entrenched as, you know, the, the part of the trifecta of Gamban, GamStop, GamCare, right? So I think, you know, they're doing great as far as the last update that I got from them. And um, I'm really quite thankful for that experience because it gave me a lot of good insight into what we're doing now with Kindbridge. Thanks, then. It's very clear that Kindbridge has already done a fantastic job and there are many more things and ventures to come. So folks out there, please watch out for Kindbridge before, although Dan's already started doing that to some extent, but before I do give him a minute to wrap up and give us the moral of his story, we're both avid, it's fair to say, NFL fans, so I cannot resist but ask, and I will not hold you accountable for it, of course, who do you think will be lifting the Super Bowl 56 trophy in February? Is it another Brady year? Is it a Mahomes year? Is it someone else's year? It's a Baker Mayfield year. It's a Cleveland Browns kind of year. That's a bold <laughs> choice. But I think well, I got. I mean, out. I got to say, I just like Baker was great at OU, and I loved watching him. And I think that they've done some. They, they put some fundamental building blocks in to make what's around him better. And don't like I'm not partial to Cleveland. It's not I've never <laughs> I've never really cared much about the Cleveland Browns. Um, but I, you know, I having grown up where I grew up, I'm just not a Kansas City Chiefs fan. And I think the Browns are going to end up going all the way to the title game again. And I think that they're going to knock out the Chiefs. And I think they're going to go to the Super Bowl. And on the other side, I'm sure that you've got the Buccaneers and Brady. So I'll, you know, I'll trust you on that side. And then I think Baker with his uh, tenacity and his youth is going to knock off the man who, um, well, really is, you know, probably older than all of us on this call and in better shape. So, yeah, that's my prediction. And I'll put I'll put 20 bucks down on it. I'm happy to take that bet, a bold prediction indeed. We should wish Baker, Odell and the crew the best of luck. And now is the time, if I may ask you, one minute to give us your concluding remarks. What what is the message you'd like to convey to the audience? So the floor is yours. There's a lot that's going on with mental health across the country. 
There's also a rapid expansion of sportsbook and casino going on as well. And I think that the concluding message would be, let's just make sure that we're looking at the right types of infrastructure and the right types of architecture that can provide the level of support that gets a person where they need to go and get them what they need as quick as they possibly can. And I think casinos got a great bullhorn to use to help drive the message home. Um, you know, not just relating to casino, not just relating to sports betting, but also just talking to the country and all of its constituents and all of its players that are on its platforms around what is going on with mental health across the country is key messaging that I think will help long-term from a public health perspective. Thank you, Dan, ladies and gentlemen. This was the one and only Daniel Amfleet, the CEO and founder of Kindbridge. I'm Martin Lichka. This was the seventh episode of my Safe Bet Show. Thank you for tuning in and see you next time. <laughs>